Well, hey, good morning, church. How's everybody doing this morning? How about that snow? I was curious how Sean liked it, and I'm pretty sure he hated every second of it. Uh, coming from Georgia, <laughs> he texted me at one point. And he's like, I know this probably isn't a lot, but this is horrible. And I was like, you're welcome. <laughs> well, if you're new with us, uh, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's so great to have you here. Um, I said it during first service, but I, I want to highlight it again. Uh, you may not have realized it, so we actually had some students who are now stepping up into worship and production. We had Lily Cook playing guitar this morning and Christian Dunning running sound. And can we just give it, yeah, that's awesome. And, and here's why I bring that up. So I actually started off in ministry in worship. And I was about their age when I stepped into ministry for the first time. And uh, I look back, and had I not stepped into that, had my pastors not given me those opportunities, I may not be here today. That opened up the door for what God is doing. But here's the bigger part. Um, we may not always realize this, but revival usually doesn't start with adults. It usually starts with youth. It usually starts with God starting to elevate and do something within youth, within children. And as Kate, our children's director, says, there's no Holy Spirit Junior. There's just the Holy Spirit. And I'm believing that God is stirring revival and doing some things in our church. And, and so I'm just so excited that our kids are stepping into ministry and serving. And here's the bigger part. I think they're going to be a role model for the adults in our church. And that they are not the church of the future. They are the church today. Amen? Um, so we're continuing in our series on Galatians. Actually, no, I was supposed to say one other thing. Sorry, I'm a little distracted. Uh, so this is beef jerky. And uh, for love and respect, I know you're all like, thank you, Jason. <laughs> That's not clap worthy. <laughs> I don't know who clapped. Uh, so love and respect. If you sign up today, Louise has donated a special gift. And if you sign up today for the love and respect event, which I'll tell you, we did love and respect. When I first came, it was the very first thing that I was responsible for putting on. And I think we had like 170 people at it. It is probably one of the best conferences I've ever been to. And it is well worth it. I had people that were single, that were dating, that are married, that went. And every single one of them said, I needed that. It was incredible. So if you sign up today, you get a free gift from Louie's. And it's not just beef jerky. Um, they've also got some uh, rubs and a few other great things. So please sign up. They've got a table out there. I hope you guys will all join love and respect. I knew there was something I needed to remember. That was it. All right. Uh, so we are continuing in our series in Galatians. And today we're wrapping up chapter 4. And for four chapters, what Paul has been doing is setting the stage for really the big push, the mountaintop, so to speak. And it's Galatians 5 and 6 where we talk about life in the Spirit. But before Paul can get to life in the Spirit, he first has to talk about the things that get in the way of life in the Spirit. And the way that God usually has to work in our lives is that sometimes in order for us to get to the blessing, God first has to deal with the detours, the things in our lives that are getting in the way of the blessing. And for the Galatian church, which is primarily a, a church filled with new believers, young believers, not necessarily young in age, but young in faith, who are Gentiles, they were not raised Jewish, and this group called the Judaizers are coming in, and because they're, they're really eloquent sounding, they are twisting and perverting the gospel, and these new believers are believing it. And in the problem, they're about ready to shipwreck their faith. And it got me thinking about... Uh, uh, an event that happened in my life. So when I was a youth pastor, 2005, um, I had a group of senior boys, and they were some of the rowdiest, funnest, most dangerous 
kids I've ever worked with. I mean, these were, like, if, if there was, like, brain development, it somehow stopped on the danger part, and if it was dangerous, they wanted to do it. And one of my youth group leaders, a guy named Kiri, who I love to this day, said, Jason, I want to I wanna do a backpacking trip with this group of guys for their senior year. Let's go to Colorado National Forest, and we're going to do a whole thing. So it was me and Kiri and, like, five or six of these high school boys. And we get to the Colorado National Forest, we're packing, and we're doing like a four or five mile pack in to the middle of the forest where we're going to set up camp. And a couple of the boys who are by far, by far the most rambunctious go, oh, dude, we're going we're gonna to run ahead and we're going to go off the trail and go explore. And here's all that went through my mind is, please don't. I don't want to have to call parents and be like, sorry, we lost your children. And, and so I'm like, I don't care if you run ahead, just stay on the trail. No, no, we want to go adventuring. You're in the middle of the forest. We'll find our way. No, you won't. And so they eventually stay on the, on the trail. They run ahead. And when I say run ahead, I don't mean like they ran. They sprinted ahead. And we finally get to base camp. And they'd gotten there before us. And Kiri and I are setting up the tents. And we're kind of getting base camp ready. And from behind the bushes, like there's some trees, I hear this, hey, the fire's almost ready. And I go and I look up and they have constructed this seven-foot teepee of firewood that is almost to the top, and they're trying to light it. And the entire thing going through my mind, just three years earlier, they had one of the worst national fires in Colorado's history. How many of you guys remember that? Only thing going through my mind is, they're going to kill us all. Like, that's all that went through my mind. I'm like, please stop. No, you can't do that. They start arguing with me. Why? This is going to be awesome. We're going to see how high. You realize we're in the middle of the forest and you're trying to start a fire with seven, a seven-foot teepee of wood. This is not going to end well. And of course, I had to be the killjoy. Now, by show of hands, how many of you in your parenting household have the fun parent and the not fun parent? Come on. Oh, we got a few of you, yet, right? Okay, in this moment, I had to be the not fun parent. And Kiri, my other youth group leader, he was like, come on, Jason, they're just trying to be adventurous. And I'm like, and get us killed. Please stop. And so what goes through my mind is between their age, which they're 17 years old, their brain development, and just the fact that they're boys, they're not thinking through the consequences. They want to start a fire that could literally kill us all. That could start, I mean, the, the reality was a flame. How many of you have ever built a, a fire teepee that's seven foot of wood, not a seven foot flame? This could have ended very poorly. I had to step in and say, stop, we can't do this. You are literally playing with fire. Now, here's why I bring this up. Everything that Paul has been dealing with in these first four chapters of Galatians is because this young, immature, and, and I don't mean age, immature in their faith, don't realize that they are playing with fire. And they literally could burn down their relationship with Jesus. The problem was, and this is still a problem today, is you had eloquent, mature-sounding people who are Christian. And I'm not going to say that the Judaizers weren't Christians. I think they were just missing the mark. They were screwing up the gospel. They were coming in and they were twisting the possibility. They were twisting the gospel. And these young believers didn't realize it. And this still happens today. There are books that are out there that Christians are devouring that are actually filled with false gospels. Let me give you an example, okay? So my name is Jason, right? Now, if you were to say, if someone said, hey, describe your pastor to me, and you were like, well, he's like 6'1", really tan, well-built. Everybody would go, it must not be the Jason I know because I'm short stocky. The only reason why I'm on a stage is because I'm short. That's it, right? And 
But if, if you were to say, that's Jason, everybody would know that's, you're not talking about the same guy. Well, we don't actually have a physical description of Jesus. What we have is a relational description of Jesus. The, the Gospels tell us who Jesus is. And if you don't know Jesus, well, then you're not saved. See, you're not saved because of an emotional relationship with Jesus. You're saved because of your belief in Jesus. And the only way that we know who the Jesus is we're talking about is the type of Jesus, how you describe your Jesus, the gospel you believe. And this is the point. The gospel that you believe actually matters. What you believe matters. Not what you feel, not your emotional connection with Jesus. What you believe about Jesus matters. Because if you're believing in the wrong Jesus, you might stand before him one day and say, hey, I know you, you're Jesus. And Jesus is going to look at you and say, I don't know you. You are going after a different Jesus. You are pursuing the wrong Jesus. This is why Galatians matters. This is why the New Testament matters. It, is, it forms our relational understanding of what Jesus looks like. And if you believe in a Jesus who is, who is condemning and overly religious and, and a Jesus who cares more about your behavior than about a relationship with you, you might have the wrong Jesus in mind. Now, it also reminds me of the second story. And then this is all part of this trip that we did. So I was about 30 years old, maybe 31, and I've had bad knees most of my life, uh, primarily from playing tall people sports. I'm a short guy who played volleyball and basketball. That's, those aren't supposed to go together, okay? And so I've had knee problems for years, and we decided the last part of this trip in Colorado, we were going to climb Long's Peak. Now, if you've never been to Colorado, Colorado is known for its 14, they're called 14ers, 14,000-foot mountains. And it's, you can get elevation sickness. I mean, it's a pretty serious thing. And uh, they decided we were going to climb Long's Peak, which is probably one of the more dangerous climbs. And the reason is, is that the first part of it is all switchbacks. That's just a trail. But the last mile and a half to two miles is bouldering. And in order to get to the top, you actually, there's some riskiness. People have died because they've misstepped or, you know, went to a boulder that wasn't secure and they ended up falling off. And as we're going, we get to this part called the keyhole route, which is the most dangerous route. And I started getting discouraged. I mean, it was hard. It was hard on my knees. It was hard on my body. And as I wanted to quit, this group of young men said, Jason, we got this. We can do this, right? And they kind of pushed me along. And we ended up doing this mile and a half to two miles of bouldering, rock climbing to get to the summit. And here I am on the summit. Oh, actually, this is great. Okay, you see that? That what looks like the ledge right there, this will kind of tell you how smart my young men were. That's about a four-foot gap to another ledge that's maybe three feet across. And this group of young men decided that what they wanted to do was to do a running jump and jump to the other side. And I had two guys do it, and my youth group leader was like, yeah, this is awesome. I'm like, no, you're going to die, right? I was that moment. And here I am. I'm so worried about them dying that I couldn't enjoy the moment until they stopped. But here's what was happening. To get to the top took a lot of work. It was hard. It was even a little discouraging at times. And when we finally got to the top, it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever experienced in my life. Here's why I bring this up. So one of the shifts that we made this year is we moved from topical preaching to what's called expositional preaching. 
Now, there's nothing wrong. Topical preaching is when we take a topic and the pastor just picks and chooses some verses to fit that topic. Everybody here, most churches, a lot of, not most, a lot of churches do topical preaching. And it can be really good. But here's the danger of topical preaching. is what it is. It's the pastor who does all the digesting and chewing and he just spits out and says, well, here are the verses you need to believe about this subject. And that's it. And we talk about things like finances and, and, and sex life and all those things. And how many of you guys remember that? It was a big thing, particularly in the early 2090s. Everything was topical. Well, the reason why we've moved to what's called expositional or actually studying the books of the Bible, going through books like Galatians. This summer, when we chose to do the first half of the Sermon on the Mount, is yes, it's hard. It's hard work. And sometimes it may not be as sexy or appealing as some people want it to be, but here's my goal. My goal is, is that we would learn God's word well, that we would become a people of the book who don't just, I don't want you just to hear what I have to say. I want you to hear what scripture has to say. I want you to see the beauty of scripture. And as, we, as we've been walking through Galatians and all of the, the struggles and the trials that are going on, there is beauty, there is topics that are in there. But sometimes it's hard. And this morning is one of those texts. In fact, it's a text of Scripture, the last part, Galatians chapter 4, 21 through 31. It's a hard read, and it can be a little hard to understand because what Paul's going to do is he's going to use an allegory, a metaphor, to convey, to challenge, to turn, to flip around their understanding of the gospel. And my hope is, is that you'll hang with me, but more importantly, I hope is that as we've been going through this, and for the most part, I've had several people like, I love that we're going through Galatians. I love that we did the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to do part two of Sermon on the Mount this summer. But that's why we're doing it, because you have to do that hard work to get to the top, to appreciate the beauty of the whole story. Does that make sense? And this story, Paul, throughout Galatians, what he's been doing is utilizing this whole gospel or this whole narrative of this guy named Abraham and Isaac and Sarah. And he's, as he's working through it, he's trying to help these Gentile believers who are new in faith to understand that what you believe about Jesus matters. Faith matters. You are not saved because of your religiousness. You're saved because of your trust and faith in Jesus. Now, I want to prep you this morning. I, may, I might say some things for some of you that might feel very condemning. It's not meaning to be. For some of you, you may not like what I have to say. And here's the thing. If the gospel offends you, if God's word offends you, that's okay. If I offend you, I apologize. Because the goal is not for me to offend. Too many pastors get up and don't care if they offend. No, God's word is offensive enough, right? So if I say anything here that is Jason getting in the way, please know that's not my intent. But we're going to challenge some things. We're going to challenge some things in the gospel that quite frankly, is a problem not just for our church, but for all churches. Because churches are filled with overly religious people. People who care more about what you do than who you know. That care more about looking, acting, dressing, be behaving a certain way more than actually loving Jesus. And that's really what Paul is trying to get to. This is the, if the last two chapters are really about getting to the top of the mountain for Paul's letter to the Galatians and seeing the beauty of what God has. And the beauty is around the spirit-filled life. That's where we're going. But we needed these first four chapters to get there. We needed to wrestle 
and see this whole idea of a multi-ethnic church that sometimes we get in the way of the gospel. We needed to allow the Spirit to move. And, and I believe, and I truly believe this, that the, when we start getting into chapter 5 next week and as we're going through, I believe God is going to stir some things in our church and we're going to start seeing the Holy Spirit do some things. Because that's really what it's about. The goal, everything has been about moving into a Spirit-filled, enriched life, a Spirit-empowered life. But in order to get there, we had to first wrestle through the things that get in the way. All right, so if you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 4. Now, my hope is, is that you'll bring your Bible. Um, they are, it's, we are not, the Bible is not the fourth part of the Trinity. It's not Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures. We believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Bible is God's Word. It's a gift to us, but it is not God. But we should celebrate it. We should be thankful for it. We should be a people who love it because it is where we learn about the person of Jesus. Now, I, I want to, before we get into the text, if you have it open, put your finger there. Paul is going to share the story of Abraham, particularly of two women in, in Abraham's life. Now, in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis 16, who you find is Hagar and Sarah and Abraham, Isaac and Ishmael. These are all the main characters. Now, you may not realize this. If you've, I don't want to assume everybody has read the Old Testament. or If you're not familiar with it, it's okay. But before he was called Abraham, before she was called Sarah, their original names were Abram and Sarai. And after God has an encounter with them, he changes their name. He adds part of his name to theirs. He now becomes Abraham. She becomes Sarah. And God comes to Abraham and he says, listen, I want you to leave the land of Ur, which was the most technologically civilization at the time of where he lived, and go to this unknown, dangerous land called Canaan. And if you do this, Abram, I'm going to bless you. In fact, I'm going to bless you so much that you're going to have more descendants than there are stars in the sky and pebbles of sand on the seashore. That's a lot of children. Now, here's the problem. Abram is really old, and Sarah, Sarai, is even older. She's beyond the age of having children. Now, in the ancient world, it was believed this, and this is important for us to realize, that if someone could not be pregnant, it was never the man's fault. It was always the woman's. Now, we know through science that's not how baby-making works, right? But in that world, if you couldn't have a child, it was either because you were barren is the language, or the God or gods did not want to bless you with a child for some reason. God gives this promise to Abram and says, I'm going to give you more family, but he has no children so far, and Sarai, his wife, is too old to have children. He goes to Sarai and says, hey, this God who told us to leave Ur and go to Canaan has said he's going to give us descendants. And Sarai looks at him and laughs and like, uh, one, I'm barren and the gods have not felt fit to give me a child. I don't think that's happening. So Sarah decides to take matters into her own hands. Now, I want to tell you that there are parts of the Bible that are messy and just quite frankly should be a little offensive for us in our modern culture. But, and just because it's in the Bible does not mean God approved of it. It's just the reality of the time. This is one of those situations. See, Sarah had a slave woman named Hagar. And Hagar was much younger of childbearing years. And Sarah, because she doesn't believe God's promise to Abraham, says to Abram, okay, you know what? I can't have children, so I'm going to give you my slave. Marry her, have sex with her, have a child with her. This is called sex trafficking. 
Hagar had no choice in the matter. It's not something that she was necessarily, it was common practice in the ancient world. It was not a big deal. But when we read that today, and for some people who are reading the Bible, what they think is that God approves of this. No, it's just the reality of what it was. Sarah gives her slave to Abram. Now, for 10 years, in the land of Canaan, for 10 years, Abram tries to have a child with Sarah. To no avail, it doesn't happen. And so after 10 years of God not fulfilling his promise to him, Abram finally says, fine, I'll do it your way, I'll do it the human way. And he takes Hagar as his wife, he has a child with her, and that child is Ishmael. Now here's the problem with that. That's not how God told them he was going to bless them. That was human effort, not God's promise. Does that make sense? And here's what we learn from that. Sometimes it's hard to trust God. How many of you have ever wrestled with trusting God before? Come on, we all have. I have, you have. It's human nature. God's timing is not yours. It's not mine. God does not say, I'm going to move this quickly. For 10 years, Abram tried and it was not happening. And finally, he was like, maybe God's not going to honor his word. And so he takes matters into his own hands. He then has a child. But the child is born of slavery, not of promise, but of human initiative. That's not what God intended. God, despite Abram and Sarah's disobedience, still blesses them with a child. And Sarah gets pregnant while she's really old, miraculously has a child, and that child is Isaac. Now here's why this matters. For the Jews, the Jews identified themselves as belonging to the, the lineage of Isaac and Sarah, the legitimate children of God. Paul's going to flip it all upside down here, metaphorically. He's not trying to create a theology. He's trying to challenge their belief. And Paul's going to say some things that are very offensive because the problem was these Judaizers were relying on human initiative, not God's promise. Now, on top of that, from the line of Isaac, Isaac had Jacob. Jacob wrestles with God, and after that wrestling match with a physical wrestling match with God, God changes his name to Israel. Everybody say Israel. Okay? Israel is where we get the Israelites. The Israelites go into Egypt. They end up in slavery there. God delivers them because of his promise to Abraham. And Moses takes them into the desert where they meet. he meets God on Mount Sinai, which is where the Ten Commandments are given. How many of you guys are familiar with this story a little bit? You know what I'm talking about? Prince of Egypt. You all seen the movie back in the 90s, right? Mount Sinai was considered a holy place because it's where God brought the law to Moses. And then out of that law, the Israelites were formed. Here's the problem. This group of Judaizers has come into these young believers... And they have taken them away from the gospel of Jesus and tried to turn them to Moses first. Now, here's why I share this. This is everything that Paul is going to talk about in this next section. And it's not an easy thing. It's, I'll, I'll be honest, it's a, it can be a little confusing. So I, I need you to, to kind of catch what I'm throwing here. Paul is going to flip their understanding and he's actually going to say some offensive things. All right, here we go. Galatians chapter 4. Verse 21, tell me, you who want to be under the law, that's God's law, that's the Ten Commandments, the Pentateuch, are you not aware of what the law says? Now, here's the first part that Paul brings us into. He says, listen, 
You Gentiles, I've already preached the gospel that tells you that the only thing you have to do is have faith in Jesus to be saved. But if you want to have your put your faith in the law and trust that, maybe you need to know what the law actually says. Because if you did, you'd realize that the law, while a blessing, the law cannot save you. It can only reveal your sinfulness. It only reveals what you've done wrong. So for those of you who don't want to be under Christ but want to be under the law, maybe you need to know what the law says. Now, when I talk to people outside of the church, one of the biggest complaints, and I'm sure most of you have heard this complaint, about the church is this, is it's filled with hypocrites. How many of you ever heard that before? Church is filled with hypocrites. They're not wrong. A hypocrite is, just simply means a false face. It means somebody who says one thing and does another. That's called being human. You don't have to go to church to be a hypocrite. We all go against our stated values. The problem is is that in the world's perspective, their view of the church is they see the church filled with overly religious, hypocritical people that are judgy and condemning, who care more about pointing their fingers at people than loving people. Kind of like Angela from The Office. Any Office fans here? I mean, think about it. Every time I watch a show, anytime there's a Christian, that's how she's portrayed or he's portrayed. Christians are not portrayed as Jesus-loving, people-loving people. They're usually portrayed as people with stick in the muds who don't know how to have fun, who are always judging, and yet are always continuing. They're doing their own sin behind their backs of other people. But that's not the gospel. That's not the Jesus that we see. Jesus calls us to a different way of living. It's not to act self-righteous. It's to act as one who finds their righteousness in Jesus. Does that make sense? Now, as we look at this, it's not, it doesn't help us that social media, why is it that it's always the Christians who are the meanest get the most traction on social media? It's always the, and, and I'm just going to, and I've said this before, if you post on, on social media, please be gracious and kind, especially if they know you're a Christian, because man, it, it gives Jesus a black eye. It makes the church look like everything they already assume about us. Christians should be the most, yes, we speak truth in love. But people should first know us by our love, not just by our truth. They will know we are Christians by our, what's the word? Love, not our social media posts condemning everything. <laughs> this is what the gospel is pointing us to, and this is ultimately what Paul is pointing us to. Now, the truth is, is that I, I struggle with this. I, I personally do. There are times that I'm not always, I don't always do what I know is right. Paul talks about this in Romans 7. In Romans 7, he says, the things I want to do, I don't do. Now, we need to be careful because here's the thing. It's easy to fall into religiousness. It's easy to fall into moralism of thinking that the goal of Christianity is behavior-directed instead of Jesus-directed. And this is the challenge that Paul is bringing us to, that when we play with the fire of religiousness, we might actually burn everything down the gospel around us, and even our relationship with Christ. This isn't a new trap. It's one that's been, every church I've ever been a part of has been filled with it. It's like Captain Akbar. It's a trap, right? I mean, we see it everywhere. The trap of religiousness, the trap of wanting to move into morality instead of a relationship with Jesus is easy to fall into. Now, there are four types of people, and Tim Keller kind of addresses these, but there's four types of people that we kind of see brought into this next part of the text. John Stott, a well-known pastor, theologian, and writer, uh, he's been long dead, but he wrote these words, there are many such today, they are not Judaizers to whom Paul was writing, but people whose religion is legalistic, 
who imagine that the way of God is by observance of certain rules. There are some of us in the church, this church included, who think that the purpose of following Jesus is to look, act, behave a certain way. That's what makes us right with God. That's not the gospel. And so if we were to have a kind of four different types of people, you have the first one. Let's say we have law and trust in the law and obedience to the law. You have some people who put all of their trust in behavior and the law. And it's God's law. God's law is a blessing, but we're not saved by it. And they are the ones who basically are like, if we don't do the right things, we're not saved. They're called Pharisees, hypocrites. These are people who put their trust in the wrong thing. But there's another side to that, which is the second one. The second one are those who put all their trust in the law, but don't actually obey the law. So the first ones, they try their hardest to obey the law. They, can, they tend to be self-righteous, smug, a little arrogant, and deeply insecure because they're never really sure they've done enough. The second ones are those who go to church, who are the first ones to point fingers at other people while in the shadows at their home alone, they're doing all the wrong things. It's the do as I say, not as I do. We all know people like that, and I'll be honest, I've been both of these people. The third type of people are those who don't believe in God's law at all. They're not even sure if there is a God, and they make up their own rules, so they don't really obey or trust because they don't believe. The Bible calls these people pagans, but the reality is, for you and I, we can be all three of these in any given moment in a day. The fourth is who we want to be, which are gospel-centered Christians. See, the gospel tells us that I do obey God's laws, not to earn salvation, but because I've already got salvation. I want to obey God because God's ways are better than mine. I trust God. So when God tells me to do something, I don't do it in order to earn His affection. I do it because I trust Him. Does that make sense? And this is what the gospel is about. When we look at these type of things, Paul is going to be addressing this within the church community. Now, here are the things. There are many in the church who believe that they are saved because of their spiritual practices. These are the ones who, they do their prayer time, they study their Bibles, they go to church, they serve in church, and in their mind, they're thinking, well, I've done all the right Christian things, I hope I'm good with God. The minute you say the words, I hope, it means you actually don't know the gospel. If you hope you're good with God by the things you've done, you've not heard the gospel. You are saved because of your faith in what Jesus has done. Amen? The second one are those individuals who think they're saved by their birthright, meaning, well, I was raised in the church. I, got, I was baptized as a baby. Did you know when you die, you're not, Jesus isn't going to ask you for your baptism certificate? He's like, hey, did you, can you get that thing for me? No, I believe in infant baptism. There's a beautiful theology around infant baptism. But you are not saved because you were baptized as a baby. You're saved because of faith in Jesus. What baptism does, it's the work of the Holy Spirit to enact faith within you. Too many people put their faith in what they do. The last one are those who think they're safe because of moral superiority or their good works. And it's always the lowest common denominator. Usually these people are like, well, I think I'm good. I mean, I'm basically a pretty good person. I've never murdered anybody. Like, way to go? Like, that's not a really high bar. See, the religious people, what they care more about is their trust in themselves, much like Abraham and Sarah, instead of trusting in God's promises, they went to human effort. They wanted to be their own saviors. Does that make sense? 
The gospel is we put our trust and hope in what Jesus has done. Now, here is a scary reality, and I need to share it because it's from Jesus' mouth, not from mine. There are those of us in the church, there are those in the church who will stand before God and say, hey, I was a good person, I went to church, I did this, I did this, and Jesus is going to say, I don't know you. Because you're not saved by what you do, you're saved by the relationship that you have with the Savior. It goes back to that illustration of if somebody says, well, yeah, I know Pastor Jason, he's six foot two. No, if your gospel has been perverted to where you think that salvation is based upon your good works, upon your human effort, you may not know the right Jesus. That's why I care so much about talking about the gospel. The gospel is the salvation of man. Paul wrote this in Romans chapter one. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel brings freedom. The gospel brings life. And when we're not careful, religiousness can get in the way of what God wants to do. Listen to what Jesus said in John 14, 23. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. God does care about how we behave, but not so that we're saved, but rather to demonstrate that we are saved. It's not what saves us. It what shows that we actually have faith in Jesus. Faith is shown by action. Abraham, the first thing he had to do to get the promises of God was to trust in God's word. And God said, leave. So action is important. Our action, our faith and trust is to leave the old world, which is my way, and put my trust in Jesus, which is the new way. Does that make sense? This is the gospel. It's not about your initiative. It's about God's initiative. It's about what Jesus has done. Obedience is the evidence of relationship, not the cause of one. And so all of this is what Paul is trying to get into. And uh, before Christmas, I talked about how God doesn't follow man's religion. He doesn't follow man-made rules. God does what he wants to do, not what you want him to do. And one of the ways that God proves that he does what he wants is he goes against the social norm that existed in the ancient world. In the ancient world, all of the rights went to the firstborn male. All of them. Women had very little voice. Everything went to the male, particularly the firstborn. And God, in order to demonstrate, hey, listen, I don't care what man-made rules are. I'm going to operate my way. It's like he purposely goes, you think the firstborn? <laughs> no, I'm going with the secondborn. In fact, I'm going to go with those. In fact, you think it's the male? I'm going to use women too. And everybody in the culture was like, wait, 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 wait. What? No, that's not how you're supposed to act, God. God doesn't care how you think he should act. God does what he wants to do because he's God, not me, not you. Amen? And so as we look at this, God wants to redefine, to reshape our understanding of the gospel, of what our hope is actually in. He repeatedly ignores human customs, man-made customs and traditions to show that God is not bound by us. He does what he wants. Galatians 4, 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman, that's Hagar, and the other by the free woman, that's Sarah, who was originally his wife. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh. What that means is he was born based upon his faith, not in God, but in himself. Abraham had faith. When he slept with Hagar, 
and Ishmael was born, that was a product of faith, just not faith in God. But his son by the free woman, which is Sarah, he's talking about Isaac, was born as the result of a divine promise. Now, as we looked and as I shared the story about Abraham and Isaac and Hagar and Ishmael and Sarah and all these things, what Paul wants to do is to change how we understand the way God works. And he's going to take something that was near and dear to the Jews and he's going to throw it on its head. In fact, what he says next would have been considered, still be considered incredibly offensive to a Jew. See, Ishmael, what church history tells us is that Ishmael, ultimately, the people of Islam come from Ishmael. And one of the things the Bible says that Ishmael and Isaac will always be at odds with one another. To this day, Jews and Arabs are still at odds with one another. If you go to the Middle East, what's the, who's the war between? Jews and Arabs. Land of Damascus, who's the fight between? Jews and Arabs. Ishmael is the firstborn son, and when Isaac is actually born, it says that Ishmael mocks him and makes fun of him and picks on him, and Sarah, out of her own jealousy and anger, actually demands that Abraham kick Hagar and Ishmael, kicking them out into the desert, basically leaving them to die. Now, here's what I want you to hear. This is so cool. So the only person that God appeared to in this story first is Abraham. Sarah never had an encounter with God. It was always through Abraham. When Abraham tells Hagar and Ishmael they need to leave, kicking them out into the desert to die, there was no safety, no security. It says that the Lord appeared to Hagar and made a promise with her that she would be blessed and that he would take care of her. Now, you might miss that, but here's what it shows. (coughs) In their human initiative, God continued to bless Hagar, even though his promise wasn't with Hagar. God cares for the forgotten and the oppressed, those who, even when they make mistakes, God still shows up. Isn't that the gospel? Jesus came to seek and save the lost, not just those put together. This is all part of the story, the bigger story of what Paul is going to talk about. When, as we continue to read now, here's where he comes in, and this is where the good stuff comes in, okay? Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai. Sinai. Now, remember I said the Jews, they value Mount Sinai because that's where the Ten Commandments, that's where the law came to Moses was on Mount Sinai. Paul just said Hagar is the one who represents Mount Sinai. In other words, what Paul is telling you is if you believe in the law, if you think the law is the goal, you're actually not connected to Sarah. You're connected to Hagar. You're in slavery. You're enslaved to sin and law obedience. You are not entrusted in the gospel. You are now trusting in the wrong thing. This is Hagar, but Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem. Uh, I've never been to Israel. It's one of my dreams is to go to Israel. Jerusalem is considered a sacred city by the Jews because that's where the temple was. The temple is where God dwelt. Here he's saying the physical city of Jerusalem, this sacred place, this sacred city, is actually a city of bondage. Could you imagine how offended you would be as a Jew hearing that? That Paul literally just said that this holy place where the temple resides, the law which you consider the gift, is actually connects you to bondage, not freedom. You're connected to the wrong source. But the Jerusalem that is above, he's referring to heaven, is free. 
and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. What Paul has done by this small story that maybe you've glanced over, maybe you've never read before, he's literally just told the Jews and the Gentiles who are trusting the Jews that if you don't think that Jesus is enough, you are putting yourself in slavery. You are putting yourself into bondage. You are backing the wrong horse. Now, why, what does this have to do with us? Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, the fact is, is they were acting as their own savior. When you put your hope and trust not in Jesus, but in human effort, in yourself, you are acting as the Savior. Jesus is not the Savior, you are, or something else is. And here's the question that we need to ask. When it comes to your salvation, and actually let's make this a little bit more personal, when it comes to how you live your life, what do you put your faith in? I want you to think about that. Do you put your faith in yourself? Is it your own abilities, your strength, your intellect? Maybe you put faith in culture or government or social media. When it comes to how you handle your finances, when it comes to how you live your life, when it comes to the decisions that you make, where is your faith? Is your faith in in freedom in Jesus or in slavery to human effort? Maybe... Your freedom is in religion or spirituality, your religious upbringing, the denomination you're in, your own good works. Here's the thing. If your faith is not ultimately in Jesus, and that faith is demonstrated by how you live your life, if it's not in His life, death, and ultimately, more importantly, His resurrection, your faith is in the wrong place. You are saved through a relationship with Christ not by what you do. And that relationship needs to pour out into every aspect of your life, not just Sunday mornings. How do you make business decisions? How do you love your spouse? Why? That's why we're doing the Love and Respect Conference. We want you to have a biblical understanding of what it looks like to love your spouse. How do you raise your children? Now, remember those four types of people? The reality is throughout the day, I can be any one of those people. There are some days where the flesh side of Jason, the the side of Jason that doesn't want to trust God, kind of steps in. And there are times that I make decisions and I don't even think about God. In fact, there's sometimes I just out and out rebel against God. And you know what I love about God? Is my relationship with Him is not dependent upon my effort, but what Jesus did. That Jesus still loves me. He doesn't mean He approves of every decision I make. I guarantee you He doesn't. But I don't have to live in insecurity that when I mess up, that somehow God's like, oh, that's one too many times. There's no three-strike rule in God's economy. That God knows my desire because in that same day, there are some times when I'm living all out for Jesus and then five minutes later, it's like I forget about Jesus and I'm living under my own will and power. What are you putting your faith in? What do you let direct you? Ishmael was born into slavery Paul is saying, if you're under the law, you're living like Ishmael. He then says this. Now, he's going to get in, and we're going to wrap this up here pretty quick. Now, you brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does Scripture say? 
Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free, with the free woman's son. Okay. One of the things that sometimes non-Christians have a problem with is that whenever the Bible says, what does Scripture say? It does not mean that God told Abraham to kick Hagar and Ishmael out. It's in there because it's the story. God doesn't hide the blemishes of His people. The purpose of the Bible is to reveal who God is and who God's people are. And the only perfect person in all of Scripture is God. His people make bad decisions. And in this case, Paul is going to use this bad decision to say, listen, we're supposed to get rid of legalism. We're supposed to get rid of that old way of doing things, of assuming that we're enough. Therefore, he says this, therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. So here's the challenge. Here's what I believe God wants to say to you and I this morning through this. This is what I believe Paul is trying to get us to. There is a danger of moving from faith to religion. It exists within our church. In every church I've ever been a part of, whether it's someone who goes to church as a volunteer, as a leader, as a staff member, and now as a pastor, every church, including this one, there are always those people who care more about religion than they do a relationship with Christ. The hard part is, and this is what God is doing in our church right now, we have lots of new people that are coming in that are getting saved that are giving their life to Christ, and they're excited about Jesus. They're excited about what God has done in their life. They're passionate about Jesus. They can't stop talking about Jesus. They can't wait for Sunday morning, Wednesday night. They can't wait for their small group. Why? Because they're encountering Jesus. They read their Bible like someone who's discovered chocolate for the first time. There are people in our church that are new who are excited. They're still wrestling with certain sins. They may be even a little irreligious, even a little offensive at times. They don't dress the part. They don't say the right words. But it's clear that they're passionate about Jesus and about what Jesus has done in and through their life. Here's the danger. The longer you've been in the church, the easier it is to forget what God has done and that flame, that passion for Jesus can begin to wane. I've been a Christian for over 30 years now and I can tell you there are times in my life that that fan, that flame of love for Jesus has dimmed down. It's way easier to drag somebody down to elevate them up. What I don't want is our new people who come here are excited about Jesus to see a community that is so meh about Jesus that they assume that's what they're supposed to be. I believe what God wants to do is ignite our church into something powerful, something that is moving, because here's what it looks like to be the religious elite, the hypocrites. These are people who, their faith in Jesus is private. They don't want to talk to people because, well, it's just between me and the Lord. They go to church out of habit and when it fits their schedule. They can't wait for church to be done. That's right. I know there are those of you who are like, Jason, we've been here an hour. Chip, chop, chip. Come on now. People who are excited about Jesus, man, they just want to be there. They're not thinking about the clock. When you went out on a first date with your wife or your husband, your first dates were you like, well, we've been here an hour already. No, you wanted, you would, how do you guys remember back in the 80s and 90s, sitting on the phone, racking up phone bills? No, you hang up. No, you hang up. How do you guys know what I'm talking about? You people with cell phones are so, you have no idea how hard it was. What if God wants to birth a passion and a flame in us? 
I want to share something very quickly, and I apologize. I'm, I'm a couple minutes late, but it's okay. God's moving. Here's what I want to say. One of the signs of religious people, religious churches, is when they don't want kids to be kids. I love when we have kids in our service. I love the sound of babies crying. You want to know why? Because it means there's babies here. Babies are awesome. When kids are running in a church, I was at a church one time where a kid was running and somebody scolded him, we don't run in the house of God. And I was like, you just keep on running. You don't think God wants children? You know what the most respectful thing a child can be in the house of God is a child, amen? God wants to stir a passion in us, in you and in me, and I believe that God is moving in us. He wants to move us past a religious spirit into that freedom of following and following, falling in love with Jesus over and over again. You might be one of those people who you've been at church for so long that you've forgotten what it's like to be in love, to surrender your life to Jesus. Today is that moment. If we don't call it out, it will either drag down or push out those who are passionate about wanting to fall in love and follow Jesus. I'm going to invite you to stand with us, and as we come to take our offering, as we come and we look at this, I want you to prepare yourself for next week. I want you to think about who you can invite next week. We're going to be talking about life in the Spirit. And I think God's going to do some pretty cool stuff. I'm excited about what God's going to do. Let us come and get to that point where we are the children of freedom, not the children of slavery. Amen? Let's come and worship. Let's bring our tithe and offering.